Section 23 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michael Yorshaw. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 23. A casual coincidence with other writers, or an adoption of a sentiment or image which has been found in the writings of another, and afterwards appears in the mind as one's own, is not infrequent. The richness of Johnson's fancy, which could supply his page abundantly on all occasions, and the strength of his memory, which at once detected the real owner of any thought, made him less liable to the imputation of plagiarism than perhaps any of our writers. In The Idler, however, there is a paper in which conversation is assimilated to a bowl of punch, where there is the same train of comparison as in a poem by Blacklock, in his collection published in 1756, in which a parallel is ingeniously drawn between human life and that liquor. It ends, Say then, physicians of each kind who cure the body or the mind, what harm in drinking can there be, since punch and life so well agree? To the idler, when collected in volumes, he added, beside the essay on epitaphs and the dissertation on those of Pope, an essay on the bravery of the English common soldiers. He, however, omitted one of the original papers, which in the folio copy is number 22. To the Reverend Mr. Thomas Wharton. Dear Sir, your notes upon my poet were very acceptable. I beg that you will be so kind as to continue your searches, it will be reputable to my work and suitable to your professorship to have something of yours in the notes. As you have given no directions about your name, I shall therefore put it. I wish your brother would take the same trouble. A commentary must arise from the fortuitous discoveries of many men in devious walks of literature. Some of your remarks are on plays already printed, but I propose to add an appendix of notes so that nothing comes too late. You give yourself too much uneasiness, dear sir, about the loss of the papers. The loss is nothing if nobody has found them, nor even then, perhaps, if the numbers be known. You are not the only friend that has had the same mischance. You may repair your want out of a stock which is deposited with Mr. Allen of Moglin Hall, or out of a parcel which I have just sent to Mr. Chambers for the use of anybody that will be so kind as to want them. Mr. Langston's are well, and Miss Roberts, whom I have at last brought to speak, upon the information which you gave me, that she had something to say. I am, etc., Sam Johnson. London, April 14, 1758. To the same. Dear Sir, you will receive this by Mr. Baretti, a gentleman particularly entitled to the notice and kindness of the Professor of Poesy. He has time but for a short stay, and will be glad to have it filled up with as much as he can hear and see. In recommending another to your favor, I ought not to omit thanks for the kindness which you have shown to myself. Have you any more notes on Shakespeare? I shall be glad of them. I see your pupil sometimes. His mind is as exalted as his stature. I am half afraid of him, but he is no less amiable than formidable. He will, if the forwardness of his spring be not blasted, be a credit to you and to the university. He brings some of my plays with him, which he has my permission to show you, on condition you will hide them from everybody else. I am, dear sir, etc., Sam Johnson. 
London, June 1st, 1758. To Bennett Langdon, Esquire of Trinity College, Oxford. Dear Sir, Though I might have expected to hear from you upon your entrance into a new state of life at a new place, yet recollecting, not without some degree of shame, that I owe you a letter upon an old account, I think it my part to write first. This indeed I do not only from complaisance but from interest, for living on in the old way I am very glad of a correspondent so capable as yourself to diversify the hours. You have at present too many novelties about you to need any help from me to drive along your time. I know not anything more pleasant or more instructive than to compare experience with expectation or to register from time to time the difference between idea and reality. It is by this kind of observation that we grow daily less liable to be disappointed. You, who are very capable of anticipating futurity and raising phantoms before your own eyes, must often have imagined to yourself an academical life, and have conceived what would be the manners, the views, and the conversation of men devoted to letters, how they would choose their companions, how they would direct their studies, and how they would regulate their lives. Let me know what you expected and what you have found. At least record it to yourself before custom has reconciled you to the scenes before you, and the disparity of your discoveries to your hopes has vanished from your mind. It is a rule never to be forgotten that whatever strikes strongly should be described while the first impression remains fresh upon the mind. I love, dear sir, to think on you, and therefore should willingly write more to you, but that the post will not now give me leave to do more than send my compliments to Mr. Wharton and tell you that I am, dear sir, most affectionately, your very humble servant, Sam Johnson. June 28, 1757 to Bennett Langton, Esquire at Langton, near Spilsby, Lincolnshire. Dear Sir, I should be sorry to think that what engrosses the attention of my friend should have no part of mine. Your mind is now full of the fate of Dury, but his fate is past, and nothing remains but to try what reflection will suggest to mitigate the terrors of a violent death, which is more formidable at the first glance than on a nearer and more steady view. A violent death is never very painful, the only danger is lest it should be unprovided. But if a man can be supposed to make no provision for death in war, what can be the state that would have awakened him to the care of futurity? When would that man have prepared himself to die who went to seek death without preparation? What then can be the reason why we lament more him that dies of a wound than him that dies of a fever? A man that languishes with disease ends his life with more pain but with less virtue. He leaves no example to his friends, nor bequeaths any honor to his descendants. The only reason why we lament a soldier's death is that we think he might have lived longer. Yet this cause of grief is common to many other kinds of death which are not so passionately bewailed. The truth is that every death is violent, which is the effect of accident. Every death which is not gradually brought on by the miseries of age or when life is extinguished for any other reason than that it is burnt out. He that dies before sixty of a cold or consumption dies in reality by a violent death. Yet his death is borne with patience only because the cause of his untimely end is silent and invisible. Let us endeavor to see things as they are, and then inquire whether we ought to complain. Whether to see life as it is will give us much consolation, I know not, but the consolation which is drawn from truth, if any there be, is solid and durable. 
that which may be derived from error must be, like its original, fallacious and fugitive. I am, dear, dear sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. September 21, 1758. 1759, 8.50. In 1759, in the month of January, his mother died at the great age of ninety, an event which deeply affected him. Not that his mind had acquired no firmness by the contemplation of mortality, but that his reverential affection for her was not abated by years, as indeed he retained all his tender feelings even to the latest period of his life. I have been told that he regretted much his not having gone to visit his mother for several years previous to her death, but he was constantly engaged in literary labors which confined him to London, and though he had not the comfort of seeing his aged parent, he contributed liberally to her support. Soon after this event, he wrote his Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia, concerning the publication of which Sir John Hawkins guesses vaguely and idly, instead of having taken the trouble to inform himself with authentic precision. Not to trouble my readers with a repetition of the knight's reveries, I have to mention that the late Mr. Strahan the printer told me that Johnson wrote it that with the profits he might defray the expense of his mother's funeral and pay some little debts which she had left. He told Sir Joshua Reynolds that he composed it in the evenings of one week, sent it to the press in portions as it was written, and had never since read it over. Mr. Strahan, Mr. Johnson, and Mr. Dodsley purchased it for a hundred pounds, but afterwards paid him twenty-five pounds more when it came to a second edition. Considering the large sums which have been received for compilations and works requiring not much more genius than compilations, we cannot but wonder at the very low price which he was content to receive for this admirable performance, which, though he had written nothing else, would have rendered his name immortal in the world of literature. None of his writings has been so extensively diffused over Europe, for it has been translated into most, if not all, of the modern languages. This tale, with all the charms of oriental imagery, and all the force and beauty of which the English language is capable, leads us through the most important scenes of human life, and shows us that this stage of our being is full of vanity and vexation of spirit. To those who look no further than the present life, or who maintain that human nature has not fallen from the state in which it was created, the instruction of this sublime story will be of no avail. But they who think justly and feel with strong sensibility will listen with eagerness and admiration to its truth and wisdom. Voltaire's Candide, written to refute the system of optimism which it has accomplished with brilliant success, is wonderfully similar in its plan and conduct to Johnson's Rasselas, insomuch that I have heard Johnson say that if they had not been published so closely one after the other that there was not time for imitation, it would have been in vain to deny that the scheme of that which came latest was taken from the other. Though the proposition illustrated by both of these works was the same, namely that in our present state there is more evil than good, the intention of the writers was very different. Voltaire, I am afraid, meant only by wanton profaneness to obtain a sportive victory over religion and to discredit the belief of a superintending providence. Johnson meant by showing the unsatisfactory nature of things temporal to direct the hopes of man to things eternal. 
Rasselas, as was observed to me by a very accomplished lady, may be considered as a more enlarged and more deeply philosophical discourse in prose upon the interesting truth which in his vanity of human wishes he had so successfully enforced in verse. The fund of thinking which this work contains is such that almost every sentence of it may furnish a subject of long meditation. I am not satisfied if a year passes without my having read it through and at every perusal my admiration of the mind which produced it is so highly raised that i can scarcely believe that i had the honor of enjoying the intimacy of such a man i restrain myself from quoting passages from this excellent work or even referring to them because i should not know what to select or rather what to omit i shall however transcribe one as it shows how well he could state the arguments of those who believe in the appearance of departed spirits, a doctrine which it is a mistake to suppose that he himself ever positively held. If all your fear be of apparitions, said the prince, I will promise you safety. There is no danger from the dead. He that is once buried will be seen no more. That the dead are seen no more, said Imlac, I will not undertake to maintain against the concurrent and unvaried testimony of all ages and of all nations. There is no people, rude or learned, among whom apparitions of the dead are not related and believed. This opinion, which prevails as far as human nature is diffused, could become universal only by its truth. Those that never heard of one another would not have agreed in a tale which nothing but experience can make credible. That it is doubted by single cavaliers can very little weaken the general evidence, and some who deny it with their tongues confess it by their fears. Notwithstanding my high admiration of Rasselas, I will not maintain that the morbid melancholy in Johnson's constitution may not, perhaps, have made life appear to him more insipid and unhappy than it generally is for I am sure that he had less enjoyment from it than I have. Yet, whatever additional shade his own particular sensations may have thrown on his representation of life, attentive observation and close inquiry have convinced me that there is too much of reality in the gloomy picture. The truth, however, is that we judge of the happiness and misery of life differently at different times according to the state of our changeable frame. I always remember a remark made to me by a Turkish lady educated in France. Moi femme, monsieur, notre bonheur depend de la façon que notre sang circule. This I have learnt from a pretty hard course of experience, and would, from sincere benevolence, impress upon all who honour this book with a perusal, that until a steady conviction is obtained, that the present life is an imperfect state and only a passage to a better, if we comply with the divine scheme of progressive improvement, and also that it is a part of the mysterious plan of providence that intellectual beings must be made perfect through suffering, there will be a continual recurrence of disappointment and uneasiness. But if we walk with hope in the midday sun of revelation, our temper and disposition will be such that the comforts and enjoyments in our way will be relished, while we patiently support the inconveniences and pains. After much speculation and various reasonings, I acknowledge myself convinced of the truth of Voltaire's conclusion, Après tout c'est un monde passable, but we must not think too deeply. Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise, is in many respects more than poetically just. Let us cultivate under the command of good principles 
La Théorie des Sensations Agréables. And, as Mr. Burke once admirably counseled a grave and anxious gentleman, live pleasant. The effect of Rasselas and of Johnson's other moral tales is thus beautifully illustrated by Mr. Courtenay. Impressive truth in splendid fiction dressed checks the vain wish and calms the troubled breast. O'er the dark mind a light celestial throws and soothes the angry passions to repose. As oil effused illumes and smooths the deep when round the bark the swelling surges sweep. It will be recollected that during all this year he carried on his idler, and, no doubt, was proceeding though slowly in his edition of Shakespeare. He, however, from that liberality which never failed when called upon to assist other laborers in literature, found time to translate for Mrs. Lennox's English version of Brumoy a dissertation on the Greek comedy and the general conclusion of the book. Note, this paper was in such high estimation before it was collected into volumes that it was seized on with avidity by various publishers of newspapers and magazines to enrich their publications. Johnson, to put a stop to this unfair proceeding, wrote for the Universal Chronicle the following advertisement, in which there is, perhaps, more pomp of words than the occasion demanded. London, January 5, 1759. Advertisement. The proprietors of the paper entitled The Idler, having found that those essays are inserted in the newspapers and magazines with so little regard to justice or decency that the universal chronicle in which they first appear is not always mentioned, think it necessary to declare to the publishers of those collections that however patiently they have hitherto endured these injuries, made yet more injurious by contempt, they have now determined to endure them no longer. They have already seen essays, for which a very large price is paid, transferred with the most shameless rapacity into the weekly or monthly compilations, and their right, at least for the present, alienated from them, before they could themselves be said to enjoy it. But they would not willingly be thought to want tenderness, even for men by whom no tenderness hath been shown. The past is without remedy, and shall be without resentment. But those who have been thus busy with their sickles in the fields of their neighbors are henceforward to take notice that the time of impunity is at an end. Whoever shall, without our leave, lay the hand of rapine upon our papers is to expect that we shall vindicate our due by the means which justice prescribes and which are warranted by the immemorial prescriptions of honorable trade. We shall lay hold in our turn on their copies, degrade them from the pomp of wide margin and diffuse typography, contract them into a narrow space, and sell them at an humble price, yet not with a view of growing rich by confiscations, for we think not much better of money got by punishment than by crimes. We shall, therefore, when our losses are repaid, give what profit shall remain to the Madelines, for we know not who can be more properly taxed for the support of penitent prostitutes than prostitutes in whom there yet appears neither penitence nor shame. End of note. An inquiry into the state of foreign countries was an object that seems at all times to have interested Johnson. Hence Mr. Newberry found no great difficulty in persuading him to write the introduction to a collection of voyages and travels published by him under the title of The World Displayed the first volume of which appeared this year and the remaining volumes in subsequent years. 
I would ascribe to this year the following letter to a son of one of his early friends at Litchfield, Mr. Joseph Simpson Barrister, and author of a tract entitled Reflections on the Study of Law. If you married imprudently, you miscarried at your own hazard, at an age when you had a right of choice. It would be hard if the man might not choose his own wife, who has a right to plead before the judges of his country. If your imprudence has ended in difficulties and inconveniences, you are yourself to support them, and with the help of a little better health, you would support them and conquer them. Surely that want which accident and sickness produces is to be supported in every region of humanity, though there were neither friends nor fathers in the world. You have certainly from your father the highest claim of charity, though none of right, and therefore I would counsel you to omit no decent nor manly degree of importunity. Your debts in the whole are not large, and of the whole but a small part is troublesome. Small debts are like small shot. They are rattling on every side and can scarcely be escaped without a wound. Great debts are like cannon, of loud noise but little danger. You must, therefore, be enabled to discharge petty debts that you may have leisure with security to struggle with the rest. Neither the great nor little debts disgrace you. I am sure you have my esteem for the courage with which you contracted them and the spirit with which you endure them. I wish my esteem could be of more use. I have been invited, or have invited myself, to several parts of the kingdom, and will not incommode my dear Lucy by coming to Litchfield while her present lodging is of any use to her. I hope in a few days to be at leisure and to make visits. Whither I shall fly is matter of no importance. A man unconnected is at home everywhere, unless he may be said to be at home nowhere. I am sorry, dear sir, that where you have parents, a man of your merits should not have an home. I wish I could give it to you. I am, my dear sir, affectionately yours, Sam Johnson. He now refreshed himself by an excursion to Oxford, of which the following short characteristical notice in his own words is preserved. Blank is now making tea for me. I have been in my gown ever since I came here. It was, at my first coming, quite new and handsome. I have swum thrice, which I had disused for many years. I have proposed to Van Sittart climbing over the wall, but he has refused me, and I have clapped my hands till they are sore at Dr. King's speech. His negro servant, Francis Barber, having left him and been some time at sea, not pressed, as has been supposed, but with his own consent, it appears from a letter to John Wilkes Esquire from Dr. Smollett that his master kindly interested himself in procuring his release from a state of life of which Johnson always expressed the utmost abhorrence. He said, No man will be a sailor who has contrivance enough to get himself into a jail, for being in a ship is being in a jail with the chance of being drowned. And at another time, a man in a jail has more room, better food, and commonly better company. The letter was as follows. Chelsea, March 16, 1759. Dear Sir, I am again your petitioner in behalf of that great cham of literature Samuel Johnson. His black servant, whose name is Francis Barber, has been pressed on board the stag frigate Captain Angel, and our lexicographer is in great distress. He says the boy is a sickly lad of a delicate frame, and particularly subject to a malady in his throat, which renders him very unfit for his majesty's service. You know what manner of animosity the said Johnson has against you, and I dare say you desire no other opportunity of resenting it than that of laying him under an obligation. 
He was humble enough to desire my assistance on this occasion, though he and I were never cater cousins, and I gave him to understand that I would make application to my friend Mr. Wilkes, who perhaps by his interest with Dr. Hay and Mr. Elliot might be able to procure the discharge of his lackey. It would be superfluous to say more on the subject, which I leave to your own consideration, but I cannot let slip this opportunity of declaring that I am, with the most inviolable esteem and attachment, dear sir, your affectionate, obliged, humble servant, T. Smollett. Mr. Wilkes, who upon all occasions has acted as a private gentleman with most polite liberality, applied to his friend Sir George Hay, then one of the Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty, and Francis Barber was discharged, as he has told me, without any wish of his own. He found his old master in chambers in the inner temple and returned to his service. What particular new scheme of life Johnson had in view this year I have not discovered, but that he meditated one of some sort is clear from his private devotions, in which we find the change of outward things which I am now to make, and grant me the grace of thy Holy Spirit that the course which I am now beginning may proceed according to thy laws and end in the enjoyment of thy favor. But he did not in fact make any external or visible change. At this time, there being a competition among the architects of London to be employed in the building of Blackfriars Bridge, a question was very warmly agitated whether semicircular or elliptical arches were preferable. In the design offered by Mr. Milne, the elliptical form was adopted, and therefore it was the great object of his rivals to attack it. Johnson's regard for his friend Mr. Gwynne induced him to engage in this controversy against Mr. Milne, and after being at considerable pains to study the subject, he wrote three several letters in the Gazetteer in opposition to his plan. If it should be remarked that this was a controversy which lay quite out of Johnson's way, let it be remembered that, after all, his employing his powers of reasoning and eloquence upon a subject which he had studied on the moment is not more strange than what we often observe in lawyers, who, as quicquid aguent homines is the matter of lawsuits, are sometimes obliged to pick up a temporary knowledge of an art or science of which they understood nothing till their brief was delivered and appear to be much masters of it in like manner members of the legislature frequently introduce and expatiate upon subjects of which they have informed themselves for the occasion end of section twenty three read by michael yorshaw los angeles california